This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. This is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. Here's your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and author of the bestseller, Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman. Zwe Kwok, that's spelled D-U-E-Q-U-A-C-H, is the founder and CEO of Calm Clarity, and she's author of the book, Calm Clarity, How to Use Science to Rewire Your Brain for Greater Wisdom, Fulfillment, and Joy. Zwe was a refugee from Vietnam to Philadelphia in the early 80s. She graduated from Harvard College and also the Wharton MBA program in 2006. She was in my class in 2004. She overcame the long-term effects of poverty and severe childhood trauma in her emigration to Philadelphia and the poverty that she experienced growing up here in Philly by turning to neuroscience and meditation. After building a successful international business career in management consulting and private equity investments, she studied various contemplative traditions in India and other parts of Asia to create the Calm Clarity Program, which makes mindful leadership accessible to people of all backgrounds. Zwei now leads Calm Clarity workshops in inner city high schools, like the ones she grew up in and attended, university lecture halls, and corporate executive boardrooms alike. She's familiar with all those different worlds. She's also the founding chair and executive director of the Collective Success Network, which is a nonprofit that supports low-income, first-generation college students, like she was, in achieving their academic, personal, and professional aspirations. It's an amazing story. So get set to listen and learn from the riveting, truly inspiring story of Zwe Kwok's life and how she discovered a method for finding calm that can permeate your work and all the different parts of your life in some significant ways, especially for people who've experienced significant trauma. She's a model for how to convert your own painful experience into something of life-affirming value for other people. It's Zwe Kwok. Zwe, so nice to have you here in the studio. Welcome to Work and Life. Thank you so much. <clears throat> it's a pleasure to be here, and I'm just so honored to be on your show after having been in your class about 14 years ago. So it's a... Uh, it's quite a privilege to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, it's great to have you here. Uh, your, your path to your undergraduate degree at Harvard and MBA here at Wharton was unusual as a refugee from Vietnam. So before we get into Calm Clarity, how that evolved, uh, just tell us a bit about 
your journey, your story, well, to Wharton? Sure. Um, you know, when I was growing up, my parents didn't really have high expectations for me. Um, when I was in the refugee camps, I was so developmentally challenged and impaired. Uh, when we escaped Vietnam, I was about six months old, and I barely survived the boat trip. I mean, there were storms, um, we ran out of food, like people thought they were going to die, and the babies were dying on the boat. When was this? This was back in the beginning of 1979, and our, our um, boat was attacked by, well, not attacked, but it was... We thought we were being rescued by like a Navy ship from Malaysia, mm -hmm. um, but that the people on the ship actually robbed the boat people mm -hmm. and um, raped the women on the boat who bothered to come on the ship because they thought they were being rescued. Mm. Um, and so my parents were lucky they didn't get on the ship and they were fine, but they you know, were so traumatized by that experience. And um, luckily, we did end up at a refugee camp, and the conditions were so unhygienic. And again, where was that? That was in Indonesia. Mm -hmm. And every day, like elderly and children who are the most vulnerable succumb to tropical diseases, epidemics, things like that. And my brother got malaria. I had all sorts of different problems that barely pulled through. But luckily we did. And then when we got to America, they realized that I was not developing right. <laughs> you know, I wasn't growing hair. I was very slow to walk, to talk. And so I didn't really learn how to talk until I was about like in first or second grade. Wow. So you came directly to Philadelphia? Mm -hmm. We were resettled in Philadelphia. And um, my parents were so busy trying to make like figure out a new life here. And it was so violent. We were resettled in the Logan section of the city and there was so much crime. And so a lot of the refugees were beaten up on their way home. My dad was followed and nearly like beaten up several times. And he stopped coming home after work because he it just wasn't safe. So he would go and, and um, stay with a relative instead of coming home. Hmm. Right. And what so kind of work was he doing? He was a waiter. So he was waiting tables in Chinatown, mm -hmm. getting off work at like around midnight. And it just wasn't safe to come home at that point. Um, and then after a while, they saved up enough money to get a takeout restaurant. And that was in the West Oak Lane section of Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. And we were so excited because we were like coming out of this tiny cramped, like, I think it was a one bedroom apartment where seven people were living together, right? And we managed to get into this takeout restaurant and we thought it was like a palace. But soon enough, like once we opened the takeout, gangs started coming into the takeout and uh, it was very violent. Um, people would fight in the takeout. People would shoot guns into the takeout. Um, when I was in middle school, one of our customers who was involved in you know, crime and gangs um, was shot in the head while he was leaving the store. Mm. And so we were left, to, when they took him away in the ambulance, like everything else was left to us to clean up. Mm. So I'll never forget how much blood and gore and all that stuff was there. So I didn't really have a typical childhood. And because my parents couldn't really make ends meet, like I started working in the takeout. Once we took, took it over, I was like eight years old. So that's when I got my first job. So, but you, by then you're you're in the local school here in, yeah. in Philly in, in the Logan section. Yeah, yeah. So look, um, my parents um, they were really concerned about the public schools. Like my brother had gone to um, first grade at Bernie High School. I mean Bernie Elementary School. Came home with his arm broken one day, and mm. the teachers didn't do anything about it. <laughs> so my parents 
realized that we weren't going to be safe in these public schools. And through the Vietnamese network, they found us a scholarship program to go to a local parochial school. Mm. So when I started, I was lucky enough to bypass the public elementary school. I see. And then for high school, I went to Central, which is... Um, you know, one of the top magnet schools here in the city. Right. And so I was lucky that they, that was a very strong high school and prepared me to get into an Ivy League high school. But I worked my butt off. Well, Ivy League college. <laughs> yeah, yes. Ivy League college, sorry. And, um, you know, because I, I had to help my parents run the takeout restaurant after school. In high school? Yeah, after high school, mm-hmm. um, during high school. And then, you know, do um, all of my classwork, do all my homework, be part of extracurricular clubs and activities and somehow like apply for college you know and there was no SAT prep program right All so right. I taught myself how to do I basically learned how to hack the SATs and you know all right what do you have a, a quick tip for those uh, moms and dads listening or students who are wondering about how to hack the SATs aside from being born with a huge brain that has a lot of information capacity uh, information processing capacity in it well I mean I think, one, the tests have changed uh-huh. since I was there. So I'm not yes. sure my tips would help right now. Yes. But there was a lot of pattern recognition. Hmm. So I think the point is take as many practice tests as you can. All right, kids, you hear that? Practice. Right. That That's going to help you on your SATs. <laughs> right, because the more practice tests you get, the more patterns you yes. can see. And then you can take the test faster and faster. So you're you're working after school. You're you're doing whatever you can to get the best grades and to position yourself to to be a candidate at an Ivy League school. And voila, you're admitted to Harvard. Um, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I don't think I understood at the time why Harvard accepted me. Uh-huh. So it was like a few years later that I eventually met the director of admissions or mm. the person who who reviewed my dossier and recommended that they accept me. And he told me three things. He said the reason Harvard accepted me was because, one, I met the bar for what they were looking for, mm-hmm. right? And, and, you know, a lot of kids meet the bar, right? It's more than the amount that they can take in. Of course. The second thing was I had no resources to meet the bar. So there was no SAT prep. There was no mm-hmm. Kaplan. Mm-hmm. So they're just like, how did this person meet the bar? Mm-hmm. <laughs> she was not groomed for it. So that's pretty exceptional. Mm-hmm. And he said the third thing was that they saw a trajectory, they saw some sort of intellectual hunger. And even though I didn't have the opportunities that a lot of the other students had to like go to different countries or, you know, like mm-hmm. my my um, application was very good for inner city Philadelphia, but not spectacular if you compare it to like Andover, Exeter, right? Okay. Um, right. But they realized for its own terms that mm-hmm. it was very compelling. So... Um, I, I don't want to detour around your experience at Harvard and how that led you to the Collective Success Network. So if you could touch briefly on what the Collective Success Network is and what, in your experience, motivated you to, 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 to create this, uh, then we'll get deeper into how you discovered uh, Calm Clarity and, and what you're doing to bring it to, to the world. Sure. So, you know, I think most of us can't really go back in time and like heal our past self of traumas or things that we went through. But what we can do is to help people today who are going through the same challenges that we went through. Right. That's how you can make a difference in the world and get some sort of sense of redemption that what you went through was meaningful. And so when I was uh, at Harvard, I had no idea 
what I was getting myself into. Everyone just said, oh, she got into Harvard. That's great. <laughs> you know, it's like a fairy tale come true. Right. And no one had any idea how hard it would be to get through four years at Harvard, not because it was academically challenging, but because it would be so socially alienating and isolating for someone who came from inner city Philadelphia who did not like have a suburban background, was not even exposed to private school culture, to be just plucked down in this, you know, kind of foreign country or mm-hmm. a different planet mm-hmm. and people talk differently ate differently dress differently all that stuff right of course nobody holding your hand and i learned that international students had like foster parents you mm. know and but nothing was those there. with resources had, yeah had people supporting them older people grown-ups yeah i mean international students who were probably children of diplomats and ceos in their native country mm-hmm. had so much support here but inner city kids who, you know, grew up with a completely different environment were left on their own. And I would just say something at Harvard and know that people didn't understand me. Mm-hmm. Like it, You're speaking it, English, of course, perfectly. English, it's your native language, basically, right? Right. But people say, she's so weird, or I don't get her. Like, she doesn't get us. Like, what's going on? Mm-hmm. So there was just this disconnect in terms of cultural capital and just not understanding, like, people's references and what they were saying. Mm-hmm. So that just added up over time. But I was completely clueless when it came to careers. So mm-hmm. I graduated from Harvard unemployed. Mm-hmm. Right, and it took me a while to figure out what to do with my life, even though I graduated with honors. So this is mid nineties. This was um, I was class of two thousand at Harvard. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Right, and somehow went through four years, but was just clueless because a lot of people were going to grad school, you know, and I was being asked if I wanted to go to grad school, but I didn't think that was a good fit, and I didn't even understand what my options were because it was like you can be a doctor, you can be a lawyer, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm like, well, I don't want to do those things, mm-hmm. and so even though I went to the best school in the world, I was completely lost in terms of what to do with myself, my life, how to make friends, how to even fit in, so we, on um, this past year was our first year, Oh, we pilot tested a mentorship program like mm-hmm. a group program because there's not enough professionals to do one-on-one I see. and professionals want this to be a social experience mm. so we built pods of um, where two professionals buddy up to mentor and we have about four to six students in each pod and they like we got um, Comcast, Pico, RSM to be willing to host the pods at their offices. Uh-huh. So and some are on campus like around University City where the students aren't able to go Here to corporations. Here in Philadelphia? Yeah. Right. And so, um, and people who've done the experience said it's been wonderful in terms of bonding. Sure. And we give them guided conversations for, it's it's five sessions. So we tell them, like, here's five topics and here's, like, mm-hmm. like um, content you can work through. So it's never awkward. And the conversations are so deep and meaningful and real that, like, people come back. They do the mentorship program again. So we pilot tested the, the first one Cause, in the fall. Because they're getting real value from the yeah. experience of feeling connected to the mm-hmm. next generation, being able to give back that sense of redemption that you talked about at the top. Yes, exactly. So we pilot tested the concept in the fall. Then we did it again in spring, and there was repeat. So this upcoming school year... Next fall, we'll do our third cycle. So we're tweaking and refining as we go. Is it, is it based primarily in Philly now, or is it's it? It's only in Philly at this point. Only in Philly because we don't. We you know it's an in-person you, process. Do you have aspirations to take it beyond uh, the great city of Philadelphia? I mean, we would need people to collaborate with us in mm. different cities, mm-hmm. right? Because this is a very hands-on program. Yeah. And you don't want to scale something if you don't have boots on the ground to Absolutely. deliver a high-quality experience. So how could people find out more uh, about how they might get involved in the Collective Success Network and perhaps get something like this going 
in the many, many cities around the country where we have listeners right sure, now sure. thinking, hey, that sounds pretty cool. I'd like to get involved in that. Um, we have a website, collectivesuccess.org, and in it there's an overview of all the programs we run and like guidelines on you know what we're looking for to start a new campus chapter or to come to a different city. We're trying to build a hub-and-spoke type of model where there's a team of professionals who lead mm-hmm. programs in new cities, and then the student leaders are running campus chapters as the spokes. Mm-hmm. And that collaboration somehow allows us to run intercollegiate programs where there's scale. Yeah. And, and there's you can leverage social capital across the city that way. So another great program we have is the Career Guidance Program, where students need help understanding like with the career they want to go into, how to navigate that journey. So we match them with a professional in that path who tells them what is, what did they, what does the recruiting process look like? This is more than what the university can provide. Um, Because it's like, very specifically hands on to that career they want to go to. Mm -hmm. For instance, one of the students loves prosthetics and she wants to make prosthetics and design cutting edge prosthetics. Uh I happen to have a friend who's in that area of work so he was her he agreed to be her advisor and he not only told her how you build a career he then began to make introductions to companies that are hiring and she's been getting interviews so i need to check in with her to hear how the last interview Uh went but it completely changes their path because now they have role models and people who can open doors Mm -hmm. for them and advocate for them where she would have been completely lost on her own collectivesuccess.org to find out more. I, I, I want to make sure we, we, we return mm-hmm. to uh, your discovering your professional career following your, your traumatic time at Harvard, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, you were successful, but you also experienced a lot of uh, pain there, right, for being socially and culturally isolated. Yeah. How did you, how'd you get through that? Well, because I know that that's part of the story of how you got to Calm Clarity. Sure. I mean, I think I had no idea how impoverished a background I came from until I got to Harvard. It was seeing the difference in how my classmates and peers lived versus where I came from. Mm-hmm. That was a huge shock to me. Yes. Like you realize, oh, you were poor. <laughs> you were underprivileged. You didn't get that uh, growing up in, uh, in Philly. In no. Philly. The, the, it was normal here. Of course. Right? Yes. And furthermore. And you hadn't been exposed beyond Philly much growing up. No. I just knew my neighborhood. <laughs> and, wow. And the great parochial city of Philadelphia. It, it tends to be socially isolated in many pockets of this city. Well, but, but if you don't have money to go very yeah, far. Yeah, exactly. You know? So, so you're, you get there and you realize through the social comparisons that you're now making for the first time, oh, wow. Yeah, and I was like, these people who were the children of governors and pres- like vice presidents, like yes. of course, daughters were there while I was there, um, and I have to keep up with them. And my parents can barely pay, right. like, like all their expenses, and they can't even come visit me because they don't have the funds to, right, right. you know. Um, and whenever my dad dropped me off, he never got a hotel. He, I just hit him in my dorm, mm. <laughs> you know. So these are things you just don't talk about, but you kind of figure out a way of making things work. And you don't talk about it because you're ashamed of it? Because nobody talks about this stuff, mm. right? And I remember at Harvard, if I did share actual stories from my background— the other students would freak out. Except for those that you became friends with, I assume, yes? Yes. You must have found some people who were who were on the same wavelength or could hear your 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 history, your story and, and not not be freaked out. I found a couple. Just a couple. Yeah. 
<laughs> and usually it was students who had similar trauma. Sure. Right? Like mm. the friend who helped me get into consulting at some point was homeless as well and, you know, had like very challenging childhood as well. Mm-hmm. Right? So you eventually find people. I know I wasn't the only one with that type of background at Harvard, mm-hmm. but for a long time you just felt like, you know, um, you would, would never be able to keep up. Right? So and how, I, how did you cope with that? So I think what I realized was that I was doing it to myself. There were stories that were playing out in my head that was making me feel worse about myself and about life. Even the idea that I had to keep up with people was a very self-limiting story, right? And I realized I was creating panic attacks and anxiety attacks by the how I was thinking and the ways that I was isolating myself from people. And so it took a while for me to see that you know, some people have rose-colored glasses, and I don't know if I'm allowed to curse in your show. Oh, <laughs> hell yeah. <laughs> I had shit-colored glasses. <laughs> I would look at something, and I would see the shittiness of it, Yeah. right? And, I, and at some point, someone would remark, like, it's just hard to be around you. You just think everything sucks. Mm. And I was like, it's, oh, my God. Like, there's nothing I think is good. Who told you that? It was a friend who, you know, was just, he was honest mm-hmm. about not wanting to spend time with me anymore. And it was hard feedback, but I think he was right that, you know, I was a drainer on people's energies. Mm. And I remember once I had to, um, I had a, a panic attack that was so bad, I went to the emergency room because I thought I was going to die. Like you couldn't breathe? Yeah. Yeah. And I thought I was going to, like, do something very self-destructive. So I just went in and they gave me um, anti-anxiety medication out of it. And it worked. Mm-hmm. And I was like... Whoa. Yeah, that shit works. What are these neurochemicals and what's it doing to my brain? Mm-hmm. And then I just became fascinated with like brain chemistry. And um, I ended up signing up for therapy because I was just like, I can't control this anymore. You know, I'm losing control of my mind. So if I just let this f- get worse, like who knows what I'm going to do to myself? And so, you know, the psychiatrist had me walk through my life story with him. Then mm-hmm. he said, All that trauma you went escaping Vietnam is probably the reason why you're experiencing all these symptoms, which was a huge revelation. You, I had you hadn't thought about that before. Never occurred to me that I had a different brain right. because of my experiences. So so th- this led you to be keenly interested in how your mind, how a mind works. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's what took you to calm clarity ultimately. You got, through the help of some friends, uh, into the world of consulting and investment management Mm -hmm. just if you could really briefly summarize like how you got from there to Wharton and now to Calm Clarity which you have founded. Sure I um, somehow managed to get into Monitor Group uh, which was a very premium consulting firm and the reason I wanted to work there was they had sold it to me or positioned it as like a place for idealists who want to change the world and I thought well you know once I finished Harvard I was like, there's got to be a way I can make a difference and pay it forward for people like me. But I have no skills. I have no social capital. I have to figure out a way to build that stuff first. So Monitor seemed like a perfect fit. And after three, four years at Monitor, I was like, you know, I need more skills in my toolbox. Like, this isn't enough. I don't feel ready to pay it forward yet. Mm -hmm. And um, when I applied to Wharton, I actually wrote about, you know, my dream was to build a nonprofit that would help, you know, kids in these very adverse situations realized that they had leadership potential, that they could make an impact. They just had to believe in themselves and develop themselves despite everything their environment told them about them. Mm -hmm. Because my parents always told me, like, 
you know, you shouldn't work so hard. Like it, things aren't going to work out for you. Oh wow! Yeah, like it was so much pessimism. Because like, they were so downpressed by the by the experiences that they had. They saw they didn't want you to be disappointed by having too high aspirations. Yeah. So they just said like oh, you work too sad. hard and it's not going to pay off. Right, you'll just be disappointed in life. It's like just be a pharmacist. It's an easy, cushy mm-hmm. life. They wanted, right, they wanted security for you. Yeah, and I was like, um, I'm getting straight A's. I'm like the, the top student at Central, and you just want me to be a pharmacist? <laughs> like I, I need to experience the I mean, world. Nothing, pharmacist can be a brilliant, wonderful life and career, of course. But you, you but wanted more. You wanted a fit something for different. Me. Yes. And my parents just didn't understand that. Right. And so. But again, I heard all over my neighborhood people telling their kids to like lower their expectation that that ain't going to happen. You'd be lucky if you finish high school. I would have been lucky if CCP took me or if Penn eventually. Like there was like it's a crapshoot. No one believed I would really get into uh, the community college of Philadelphia. And so, I mean, it was just low expectations. So I wanted to somehow help people see the potential they had inside them Mm -hmm. and um, transcend this type of negativity that limits people's behavior. And so that's what I wrote about to get into Wharton. Mm-hmm. And somehow Wharton accepted me and gave me a Joseph Wharton fellowship. So mm-hmm. I had less debt to pay off mm-hmm. in order mm-hmm. to go after my dream. Mm-hmm. Right. So I was like, OK, they took this seriously. I really need to do this, <laughs> you know. And um, but of course, you have so much debt again after Wharton that I was like, OK, I'm going back into consulting because they yes. didn't help me pay back. Like Monitor gave me a return offer. And but I didn't want to go back to Cambridge or New York. I convinced them to send me to Beijing because I wanted to experience my roots and, and, you know, understand the land of my ancestors. Like ancestrally, I'm Chinese. And somehow, you know, that type of negotiation worked out. They um, based me, they transferred me to the Beijing office. After a year there, I was recruited to join a private equity um, team or to lead a private equity team in my place where I was born in Vietnam in Saigon and I was like oh, wow. how can I say no to this like and it was this booming frontier mm-hmm. market and there's so much energy and enthusiasm and after I accepted it like Morton announced that they would have the global alumni forum in Ho Chi Minh City you know and I eventually was asked to MC that so it's just all this synchronicity oh, wow. where it felt like the right decision to make mm-hmm. and you know but Eventually, you know, you pay off all your loans and then you're just like, I got to make good on this promise I made to myself. Because part of the reason I got through growing up in the university and Harvard was that I was like, I need to do something like I can't just live in the suckiness and accept that life is awful and that there's no future for this. Like, I got to be the person who comes back here and like shows people there's a way. Like, if I can forge a path out of this, I have to come back and do something about these issues. Like, that's what drove me. That's why I got straight A's. That's why I got into Harvard. That's why I went into the business world was because I just knew I needed more skills to make a difference. But I would make a difference eventually. So how did Calm Clarity begin? So... Um, I had followed neuroscience ever since I first took Ativan <laughs> and then Zoloft and then other things. Mm-hmm. And um, as I went through therapy, you know, I would go back and do research about the brain and try to understand, like, how could I, you know, I only had health insurance while I was in college. I grew up without health insurance. Mm-hmm. And when I graduated without a job, I wouldn't have health insurance. So I had this deadline to wean myself off medication and therapy. 
And I was like, well, I don't want to regress. So I went to the library and I just read as much neuroscience as I could because that I didn't do with senior thesis. I was just like, this is more important. This is life or death. And I taught to discover, myself. discover, well, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, to you discover how what? my brain worked, mm -hmm. how to hack my brain. Mm -hmm. And I eventually saw there was these patterns, right? Um, which I now call like brain one porno, the inner Godzilla. You know, it's your fight, um, your freeze, fight or flight system, mm -hmm. right? And minds would like take over if I didn't get enough sleep, if I was hungry and irritable, uh, it would take over when I was super stressed and panicked, if I thought people were rejecting me, like this monster would show up, right? And then this other part of my brain, which I call brain two porno, the reward system, um, whenever that got triggered, I would want to compete with everybody to get a reward. Mm -hmm. If there was this prize, I'd be this super competitive person would show up, this overachiever, and say, "That's my prize, hands off," <laughs> you know. And like you know how at Wharton, people can be super competitive about internships really? and stuff like that. Yeah. It can happen, wow. right? And so you can <laughs> you can kind of see this like see competition, right? Yes. And so what's three Three porno is when you transcend those parts of your brain so that you can be the highest expression of you, right? Mm -hmm. So I call it the inner sage. And when you can activate those neural circuits, you realize there is no point in chasing carrots that don't make you happy, right? You don't need to compete just because you're with a competitive person, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And if someone is angry and taking it out on you, you don't have to fight back and escalate the situation. If you show the person compassion and kindness mm -hmm. and say, hey, are you having a bad day? How can I help you? Mm -hmm. If you don't take it personally as an attack, that person will change their behavior. So how did you discover what you call brain 3.0 and the mind hacking? Uh, I, I, there's a lot to say here, I know, and that's what this whole wonderful book, Calm Clarity, is about. But in essence, how, how did you uh, come to articulate these techniques and, and how do you teach them? How do you bring them to people? Sure. I mean, it took a long time. I think it started coming through in college when I realized even in my darkest moments, there was always this inner voice that told me I could find a way forward if I let go of these stories or this approach. If I could take off the shit cup colored glasses, mm -hmm. like I would see the world differently. It was me creating all this suckiness. There was a lot of horrible, horrible things, but I didn't have to wallow in it. <laughs> Right. Mm -hmm. I didn't have to become it. I could um, still focus on the difference that I could make. You know, I could still focus on um, things that were in my control rather than things I couldn't control. Yes. Right. So that voice would keep guiding me towards like baby steps that I could do to improve mm -hmm. my life, mm -hmm. to improve my brain. Mm -hmm. And um, even through like monitor consulting. Right. While everyone was chasing something, this inner voice would just be like, hold your ground you know you don't have to trade off um you know all the stuff that's good for you because you're insecure you know you don't have to behave this way right because you're scared right like it just stopped me from acting out of fear there are so many things you could do out of fear but it's just what stopped you this inner voice right um and, and how did you find it or you know give it give it the kind of uh space to 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 yourself to to hear that inner voice and to start to really train your mind you you studied um mindfulness training um, uh, not you, yet at that time i think at that time it was more from like exercising like biking running um 
or just you know when you saw these patterns to just kind of let go and to like take a nap to relax like to not exacerbate the pattern hmm. right so it was and now i realize it is a form of mindfulness but it's an organic form a form that's without training they call mm-hmm. it open awareness where you can self-monitor yourself um but it really changed when i um got to Asia and I was exposed to the Mind and Life Institute dialogues between the Dalai Lama and the neuroscientists. And I was just like, whoa, there's something there that's deeper than what I've experienced. I want to go further. And around that time, I also had learned that Daniel Goleman and Steve Jobs, two of my idols, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right, had uh, gone to India, you know, in their early career or before they really started their career. So, so people like like Goldman, Jobs, uh, others who Richie you looked Davidson. up to, uh, Goldman's co-author and and partner, uh, wonderful book called Altered Traits. Uh, they inspired you. How? Yeah, because I mean, uh, Goldman, you know, he was he wrote the books on emotional intelligence, right? Mm-hmm. And that that was somehow inspired by what he uh, learned when he was in India. And then Steve Jobs approached a building Apple. And intuitive design, right, was also inspired by his trips to India and learning about Eastern meditation practices. And so I was like, this might be worth the ROI. I don't know what it is, but if it helped them, it might help me. And so um, I had paid off all my debt. I started building what I call a fun employment fund where I could actually figure out what is my purpose in life and mm-hmm. go after it. So I had taken on this job, which gave me a one-year visa to India to monitor social impact investments. And the job didn't work out, but I used a visa to go to India to learn meditation, right? And so I took a, a, a one-year sabbatical on my own, right, to do field work. And I just traveled through different parts of India and Asia and just kind of studied and read and practiced these things on my own. I became a certified yoga teacher while I was in Singapore. So I studied um, with various different gurus. You know, it was a a fascinating thing because I wasn't like this at all. I was the most cynical, non-spiritual, atheistic type of person. You know, The shit colored glasses you were looking through. Yeah, but even at Wharton, it was like all numbers. Right. So I had to build a model to justify whether going to India was worth it, <laughs> you know, whether there yeah. would be an ROI so on that. What, how, how did you calculate the, the decision to, to go? Well, I mean, you, you have to value happiness. Right. Mm-hmm. And how much people pay for happiness. Right. Um, and all, all the things people like alcohol and self-medication and all that stuff that I would never have to pay for ever again. Right. If, and if you could find something that was an internally available resource. So that's what led you to, to calm yeah. clarity. So you did a deep study. What, what does this book bring to 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 readers? And, and I, I, there's there's more we could say about how you generated it. But what's what's in it? And uh, and how do people use it? Sure. So what I wanted for the book to do was to genuinely change a person's life to have such an impact that it might alter the way they see the world, especially people who've had challenging life situations. Mm-hmm. And so it was to write a book that was ex- authentic, raw, honest. And so I decided neuroscience can be really dry, meaning the books I read. like, I mean, I love neuroscience, but if you don't, it's a torture. right? <laughs> um, and so I wanted the book to come to life. Mm-hmm. And so I used my own story to explain these different parts of the brain. So 
as people read it, they could think about their own story and what resonated with them. Mm -hmm. And so I bring to life like what it's like to live your life and bring 1.0, to live your life and bring 2.0. And then I explain to, I share about the journey I went through that allowed me to shift in a sustainable way into bring 3.0. Not that I don't get pulled. I still get pulled <laughs> into bring 1.0 and bring 2.0. But I don't spend as much time in those states, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't try to escape those states either. You know, I can hold space to, to, to feel those things and then let them go, right? Which is very powerful because that's what self-mastery is about. It's um, being able to change the way your brain is activated um, so that you can recenter and be your best self in any situation, so no what, matter who you're with. What is a typical training experience like for, say, the kids at the high school where you, you went mm -hmm. or wherever you're bringing this to companies or to... Um, kids here in Philadelphia, wherever you're, sure. you're bringing this, this leadership program? So we have this interesting weekend workshop model um, where we're um, asking universities to collaborate with us so we can expand our um, college scholar program. So the idea is to create these buy one, give one models where half the people pay to come to the workshop and the other half get free tickets mm -hmm. um, who come from underserved backgrounds, hmm. right? So we were pilot testing this for a couple of years. Now Villanova has agreed to help us. Um, so they're hosting the first universally-led collaboration weekend retreat, um, weekend workshop. And so um, I think we'll have possibly 70, 80 seats. Half of those seats um, we're going to offer to the public, and we're, we'll run the Mindful Leadership Program. And the other half are going to be scholarship seats mm. that we'd offer to first-generation college students, um, half at Villanova and half non-Villanova students. And what will happen? Um, and so for the, so the program has four modules. Um, in the first module, we help people understand the, like how they move between brain 1.0, 2.0, 3.0, like in their specific lives, right? So they document, you mm -hmm. know, their triggers, they reflect, you know, how, what it feels like at these states, and they start to understand there's biofeedback mechanisms that you can start to see yourself going into brain 1.0 or brain 2.0, and then you can make a conscious choice to bring yourself to brain 3.0. And then we start mind hacking exercises to rev up the neural circuits of brain 3.0. And once those are firing, everyone's like, whoa, I didn't know I could feel this way. Such as? Um, so like when I did What's this program. What's your favorite? I mean, we do the compassion meditation, mm -hmm. right? Where you wish good wishes for yourself, for other people in your life, and for all people. And we end that with a gratitude practice. And I mean, I've had teachers in public schools who said they haven't been able to sit still, relax for years. They're in constant sympathetic arousal. They can barely sleep. They're breaking down. They didn't think they could meditate. But we did this meditation together. And she said, this was the first time I could actually relax in like five years. And she almost fell asleep. And, and she was shocked. And, and all it took was to do what exactly? So this is a 10-minute meditation. What we do is we try to turn on the biological cascade of the 10 and befriend response. We try to boost your oxytocin levels. We're trying to rev up the activity of your vagus nerve. And we're trying to help um, people to feel what it feels like to have joy in yourself, gratitude and love. And you send that not just to yourself, but to people in your life and to all people. And there's some visualization exercises we do just to even further activate the vagus nerve. Um, and people can try this meditation. There's a version on the website and on our SoundCloud account. Mm -hmm. And um, once you and once you generate all this activity to rev up Brain 3.0, we then end with a gratitude journal. 
And that really helps people come into a state of peace and appreciation for their life as it is right now. And so we've done this in inner city schools and the kids want to do it again and again because they like the way they feel once you bring them into brain 3.0 it takes them out of a fight flight freeze response it takes them out of chasing carrots Um, we've had a student share that they used to be addicted to video games but after doing the calm clarity compassion meditation for like a couple months um, they don't play video games anymore really Mm -hmm. uh parents are you listening (laughs) (laughs) this this is something that you might want to explore for if you've got a kid who uh, who is spending pre- what you might think of as too much time uh, on screens and not enough in her own mind and discovering all the power that's there, uh, <clears throat> so uh, what what is it that happens to kids that makes them or to clients in, in companies where you're you know other places where you're doing this work because you are bringing this to mm-hmm. uh, to organizations as yeah. well. Um, in, in just 30 seconds, what's, what is the breakthrough idea? So when we show people how to activate Brain 3.0, it helps them to break all of their self-limiting patterns and beliefs. So as you grow and strengthen Brain 3.0, right, over time, all of us have this inner critic that's constantly, like, narrating our lives and telling us everything that's going wrong. You develop the capacity to turn the volume down on that inner critic mm-hmm. and turn the volume up on your inner sage, which gives you wisdom about how to move through life and help improve not only your life, but that of other people to have mm-hmm. a positive impact on the world. Mm-hmm. Um, it's almost, you know, Buddhists will call it your Buddha nature. Yoga geese would call it your inner teacher, mm-hmm. whatever that word is. But it's a pretty profound experience when you can connect into this wisdom that's inside you and share that with the world instead of your inner critic. Um, A question I've been asking everyone on the show this year is about compassion, which your life seems to exude. How do you bring compassion to your working life? It's interesting. Um, You know, I now try to follow this concept that Gandhi said, um, talked about ahimsa, nonviolence, to do no harm, Mm -hmm. and if possible, to heal to not transmit pain, but to try to transform it. And so I go into very difficult situations. We've run Calm Clarity for workforce development programs, for people who have encountered lots of violence and trauma, who've had really difficult lives. And our goal is to help them see that they can transform everything that they've been through into like compost and help them Hmm. to, you know, express their highest selves. Turn that shit into nutrients. Yeah. Yeah, and so that's what we do. We say, you know, you are the author of your story. Mm-hmm. There has been a lot of stuff that has happened to you that has been horrible. Mm-hmm. But if you had to write your story going forward, you know, you don't have to repeat these patterns. What new patterns would you like to create? And that is uh, just the beginning of, of your story as, as I see it. Uh, please tell listeners how they can find out more about the great work that you're bringing. Sure. I mean, people can come find more information on my website, uh, calmclarity.org. We have extensive information on um, the book and also on the Mindful Leadership Program. If you're an organization and you want to understand um, why it matters, right, um, to move your, to help your staff shift into Brain 3.0, we explain it there. And um, hopefully if this is interesting to you and you've got um 
your own journey of healing to go through, then my hope is that the book will bring you a lot of tools and insights that you'll find um, very helpful. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Zwei Kwok about her life's struggles and how she learned to bring a sense of calm to her life and her work. I hope that was useful and indeed inspiring for you. There are so many powerful lessons uh, to draw from her story and her work. I hope you will check out the links uh, to her um, various projects at workandlifepodcast.com and that you might find a way to get involved in supporting the Collective Success Network. But let me focus here on just one of the small, readily doable bits that that come from her work, um, perhaps as a starting point for you, especially as it relates to um, the theme that we that we both started and ended with in our conversation, and that is this idea of finding some kind of redemption or peace through converting the painful experiences that you might experience in your own life into something of value for other people. And part of the building blocks for constructing that project, one of those is the expression of gratitude. So here is my challenge for you, my invitation. Express gratitude. Perhaps just once a day for the next few days. What do you discover from consciously and deliberately doing that? Does the expression of gratitude help you to feel stronger, more confident in yourself? Let me know how your experiment goes. I'd love to hear from you. Uh, you can contact me directly, friedman at wharton.upenn.edu, or on Twitter, at Stu Friedman. And if you have ideas about other people you'd like to hear in conversation with me on this show, Again, it's friedman at wharton.upenn.edu, or you can write to our podcast, work and life podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work and Life. This conversation was originally recorded on my weekly radio show on Sirius XM 111, Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Tune in for live broadcasts of Work and Life on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. For more about today's guest and about previous guests, check out our blog at workandlifepodcast.com. Join the conversation by commenting there or tweeting at Stu Friedman. And for more ideas and tools for creating harmony among the different parts of life, check out our website, totalleadership.org, and my book, Total Leadership, Be a Better Leader, Have a Richer Life. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share it with your friends, family, and coworkers. Until next time, I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I thank you for joining me. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.